Welcome to the Every Nation Dorado Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. Um, welcome to this Sunday uh, morning message. Um, I just want to give a big shout out and happy Mother's Day to all the moms in our church, all the moms out there that are listening to this. Thank you so much for the way that you love us and nurture us and the way that you bring us into this world. We just want to honor you and praise you on the special um, Sunday. Uh, I'd also just like to make special mention of um, the men's event that's coming up on the 15th of May. Uh, this is for all the men. Please sign up. Uh, get in contact with your Connect Group le- leader or go on to our website and sign up for that. It's on Saturday, the 15th of May, half past eight to half past ten. See all the men there. So as many of you know, last week, Saturday, was the 1st of May. And Traditionally, it's a public holiday, not only in Namibia, but all around the world. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't get the public holiday because it was on a Saturday. Um, But the reason that we celebrate um, Workers' Day on the 1st of May, uh, the origins of that uh, go back to uh, the USA, actually, all the way back to uh, to 1886. And so what happened is, in 1886, uh, some socialist movements and some unions were striking for an eight-hour workday. And there was this big blood, a bloody clash between the police and the striking workers on the 3rd of May, 1886. And so that's the origins of it. A few years later, in 1890, um, some socialist movements in uh, the European co- Congress uh, called for a May Day ce- um, celebration to celebrate uh, workers. And ever since then, it's become a public holiday. So the reason that I bring that up is because Today, um, uh, the title of our series or our sermon today is Honoring God in Our Work. And it's part of um, a series that we're going to do, which is Honoring God in Your Workplace. So with that, I'd like to open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time that we can share um, in your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word will do um, as it has set out to do, Lord God, that it will um, reap, Lord God, Um, a harvest, a hundred times more, Lord God, than what is sown. Lord, I pray that this word would cut down to bone and marrow, that it would help us to understand who you are and what you've called us to be, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is work to you? Uh, If I ask you to close your eyes and to imagine what work is, what are some of the images that come up in your mind um, as to what work is? If you look at what the synonyms for work are in the dictionary. Uh, it is words like labor or toil or exertion or effort or drudgery. And all of these words are definitely not positive words. Um, in fact, some of them are quite negative, actually. And if I asked you to close your eyes again and to imagine uh, the image of a worker, what would you have in mind? Well, if you Google an image uh, as or the image for worker, what you end up with is a man in a hard hat. And so that is essentially what the world sees um, as what work is or who a worker is. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is God's perspective on work and who does he see as workers. Many Christians today might um, have the view that work is as a result of the curse, Uh, that because Adam and Eve sinned, in the Garden of Eden, that because of that, work was instituted and it is essentially part of the curse. 
And so we'll delve a little bit more into that to see if that is the right perspective on the origins of work. But to start off, let's look at Genesis 2, verse 2 to 3. So that's right at the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of history. And in verse 2, it reads, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. Work. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So what we see right at the beginning of history is we see that the author of the universe, the maker of you and I, that he was hard at work creating this world. And the second part of that verse talks about God rested. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But it's clear from the very beginning that God is a worker, that he works that he, it was his work that created all of what we see right now. And in fact, Jesus says in John 5, verse 17, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. How amazing is that? So point number one, God himself is at work. That is amazing. It's amazing to know that not only did God work at the very beginning, but he is still at work. And that means that he's engaging and working behind the scenes, trying to do what is best for us. Not only that, but Jesus is hard at work as well. It says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he's mediating on our behalf day in and day out. He too is at work. So where does that leave us as Christians? How should we view ourselves if we have this view that God is a worker and that Jesus is a worker? So for that, we need to go to the chapter before Genesis 2. That's Genesis 1, even earlier. So in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, So God created mankind in his own image. Image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we have an image of who God is, right? That he is a worker and that he is still at work. So point number two is this. If we are made in the image of God, point number two, we are made to work. So right from the start, God made us with the express purpose of working. We are his managers on the earth, as Miles Monroe put it. We are here to manage what God has entrusted to us. And the funny thing is that people have it backwards sometimes. Um, instead of focusing on the work, what they do is they focus on the weekend. They're living for the weekend. They, they're living for um, their holidays. They, they can't wait until the day that they retire. They may even have the goal of early retirement. And if this is your focus, if your focus is purely on living for the weekend, you have it backwards, my friend. You were made to work. That is the point. The weekend is really only just there to recharge your batteries. 
so that you can go back and work. And so if you look at what the concept of retirement is, um, concept of retirement is actually quite a new and recent phenomenon. It only started in about the end of the 19th century um, from a government policy point of view. And so over the last 140 years, uh, it has now become the norm. It is something that we take for granted, that you will work X amount of years, and at the end of, let's say, a 40-year career, that you will retire. But in fact, the concept of retirement is not only new, but I would argue it might even be ungodly. And the reason for that is that we are living much longer and longer and healthier lives. So the idea of working for 40 years and then stopping and then living a healthy 20 or 30 years thereafter and doing no productive work, that goes against the design that God put in place right from the start, which is to say that we are meant to work. Now, I'm not advocating workaholic, that you should be a workaholic, that you should work and slave away day in and day out. Because in fact, that is also a distortion of God's design. That is essentially idolatry. If you make your focus day in and day out working, then that becomes an idol in your life. What I am advocating for and what God has put in his word is a balance. If you look at Genesis 2 verse 2, as I mentioned earlier, God worked for six days and then he rested the seventh day. But the word also says that he continues to work. So he didn't stop there. And the emphasis is on the six days. He worked six days, rested one day, and he continues to work. And so that is the pattern that God gives us, that we are meant to rest, but it's really only to recharge our batteries so that we can get back to the work that God has put before us. Remember that the scripture in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28, this is before the fall of mankind, and this is actually before the curse. So in God's original design, his design, which he calls good, in fact, he says at one point, it is very good, was that man was meant to work. So society might have the view that work is exertion or toil or labor or any of those negative words I use at the beginning. Or society might say that work is paid employment. But when it comes to God and his perspective, if you read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the words or the phrases that God uses for work are things like be fruitful and increasing number. He says, have dominion over nature. He says, rule over every living creature. This was the mandate that God gave to man right from the start. I love this definition of work by the preacher Tim Keller. And he defines work as this. Listen carefully. He says, rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. What a brilliant definition for what work is. So what are the raw materials that God has given you? Well, if you're a builder, maybe the raw materials are bricks and mortar. Um, if you're a doctor, the raw materials are your knowledge of the human body and a scalpel. If you're a stay-at-home mom, your raw materials are uh, your loving hands and your time that you dedicate to your family. But those raw materials can be many things. If we look at this definition, many things can be defined as work then. In fact, um, work could be the raw vegetables and meat that you use to cook a meal for your family. That is your service. That is what you are doing for the flourishing of your family. 
or it could be your experience and your emotional intelligence and your empathy for your friend when they're going through grief because they've lost somebody close to them. That could be your work, your service to the betterment or the flourishing of everyone. So you may be thinking, well, that sounds all good and that's a bit too romantic for my notion. Malcolm, if you understand uh, the raw materials that I have to work with, if you were to look at the raw materials that I have to deal with every day, which is a terrible boss, um, employees that are bickering all day long, uh, colleagues that are gossiping all day long, if you were to look at the pain and the turmoil that I have to go through, the raw materials that I've been dealt, then you would understand that my work is not as romantic a notion as what you put forward. Maybe it's difficult for you to drag yourself out of bed in the morning just so you can put food on the ta table. But remember that the scripture verse in Genesis um, talks about a curse as well. And maybe that's what you have in mind. Maybe you thinking, well, there is that curse that God pronounces on work, is there not? And maybe that's why my work is such a, dr a drudgery. So we've gone through chapter one, chapter two. Let's look at chapter three in Ge Genesis. And the point that I want to make, which is point number three, is that work is more difficult, but it is definitely not cursed. So let's look at Genesis three, verse 17 to 19. And in verse 17, it says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it, you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Maybe that resonates with you. Maybe that's how you feel. You feel that work is sweat and pain and drudgery and thorns and thistles and eventual death. That is what you think of when you think about work. But what you're not seeing here is that God did not curse the work. What he did is he cursed the ground. Meaning that before the fall, work was actually pleasant. Work was a joy. Work was easy. Man and nature had a synergy. And the commands that man gave, the ground yielded to that. And there was a pleasantness about our work. So after the fall of man, there was a curse pronounced. And it was a curse pronounced on the ground itself. And that is on nature itself that now works against us. And so you are not imagining it when work seems tough sometimes. That it seems that it's a toil, that it's... It's something that you have to labor at and that you have to drag yourself out of bed in the mornings to get to. Because work has become more difficult as a result of sin. The land is cursed and life is not fair sometimes. But is that the end of the book? Is that it? Are we condemned to a, a journey of utter toil and labor and drudgery? Well, lucky for us, unfortunate for us, the Bible does not end in chapter 3. It continues thereafter. And in one of my favorite books, Ecclesiastes, it actually addresses this. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18 to 19 says, This is what I have 
observed to be good. And this is Solomon writing. It's a wisdom book. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. And what I love about being a Christian and about God is that he tackles the tough questions. He's not intimidated by our queries and our questioning. In fact, he addresses them head on, just like he does in Ecclesiastes. And he addresses many other topics like that in Ecclesiastes. Because there's no sugar coating in this verse. Um, Solomon writes here, it is our, that it is toilsome labor. And he says that you should be happy in your lot. It's kind of a, a resignation to the fact that labor is toilsome, that it can be tough. And I don't think that anyone that I'm speaking to right now has not experienced difficulty or trials or pain or heartache in their work. It is common to all mankind. We all face trials and we will all suffer. And I'm not here to tell you, tell you any differently. In fact, Jesus himself says in John 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. And if it ended there, it would be completely defeatist, but it doesn't. He carries on and he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And therein lies the beauty of life. We will not be spared suffering. We will not be spared trouble. But we have Jesus on our side. And Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. And the final point is, number four, we work for the glory of God. If you come back to God's design for work, and that it was never meant to be toilsome and burdensome, and that it was actually meant to be meaningful and pleasant, but that we live in a fallen world, and therefore, yes, it has become difficult. But remember, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Let's be honest. If you think about your entire life and your entire working lifespan or your vocation, if you're doing an eight-hour-a-day job, for about 40 years, then you will ultimately work about 85,000 hours in your lifetime. That is a meaningful amount of time. And if you have the view and the lens that all work is labor and toil and it's, it's tough, then you're going to be pretty miserable for those 85,000 hours that you commit to that work. So why not make the most of it? But often what we do is we make a distinction. We make a distinction between what is holy and what is secular. My vocation, that's secular. Um, that is not necessarily where I derive meaning and purpose and joy. No, uh, the holy activities that I do, you know, like when I come to church or when I look after my kids or when I'm spending time with my wife or when I'm ministering the word or when I'm evangelizing, those are the, those are the types of work that are good and holy and meaningful. All this other stuff, that's drudgery, that's toil, that's paying the bills. But what is God's perspective? Let's read in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. It says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
do it all to the glory of God. This scripture is encompassing, all-encompassing. It accounts for everything that we do. There is no distinction between secular and holy. So that means that everything that we do, including our work, needs to bring glory to God. We did a great um, sermon um, series over the last few weeks called The Atonement. And I really encourage you to go back and listen to that if you have not. And in the series, what we covered is Jesus's ultimate sacrifice for our benefit. That he paid the ultimate price so that we no longer have to pay that price. And that now he sits at the right hand of God, having finished the ultimate work. And what should our response be if we get that revelation of what it is that Jesus has done? What should our response be to that? Paul talks about this in Romans 12 verse 1. And he says that you need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That this is your good and pleasing worship as unto God. So if you get a revelation of who Jesus is, and if you are grateful and thankful for the sacrifice that he made, so that you do not have to make that sacrifice, then the only response that you can have is eternal gratitude. And what we need to do then is offer our bodies wholly and everything within us, whether we're eating or drinking or whatever it is that we're doing, as it says in 1 Corinthians, we need to offer it all as unto glory to our God. That is the point of our lives as Christians. That is our worship. So how do we do that? Well, let's find out in our key text, our final key text for today, which is in Colossians 3, verse 22 to 24. And I'm reading from the Amplified Bible. And it says in verse 22, Servants in everything obey those who are your masters on earth, not only with external service as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart because of your fear of the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from your soul that is put in your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men. Knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance, which is your greatest reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you actually serve. And there are five keys that Paul gives us here. Number one, you are not only to merely please people. You are not doing this to please people. No, what you are doing instead is you are angling towards God. You are angling all of your effort towards God. He is your boss, not your earthly boss. No, you are looking to God as the one to whom you want to please. In the NIV, it says that not only when their eye is on you. In another translation, it says, as an eye pleaser. What does that mean? Well, an eye pleaser or somebody that is doing something only because your boss has his eye on you is maybe only integrous or honest or doing their best because people are watching. But if you have the perspective that Paul gives us here, then it means that you know that God's eye is always on you in a loving way. And he's always watching what you are doing. 
And because you love him, because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you, your good and pleasing sacrifice is that you would want to please him in return. So number one, you are not doing this to please people. Number two, the opposite of merely pleasing people is the second point which Paul makes when he says that you need to work with sincerity. What is sincerity? Sincerity means with honesty. It means, it means that you work excellently. It means that even when nobody's watching, you are doing your best. You are working sincerely. And so that means that even if you're a street sweeper, the president of the country, or a stay-at-home mom, you are doing all that you do in an excellent manner. The third point that Paul makes is that you are fearing the Lord, that you are working out of fear of the Lord. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord is to have a healthy respect for him, to understand who he is in the great scheme of things, to be in awe of him. I want to ask you the question, do you have a workplace hero? So I work in, in uh, the financial world and in the investing world specifically. And so one of the heroes that I have is Warren Buffett. But maybe if you're an engineer, uh, your hero could be Elon Musk, for instance. Or maybe you have great admiration for somebody like Nelson Mandela. Imagine that you could spend a few weeks job sh shadowing Nelson Mandela, walking around with him, seeing what he's doing, and mimicking what he's doing, and learning from the very best. How would you treat that time with that hero? You would treat it with reverence. You would be in awe of what it is that you see them doing day in and day out. Well, we have the ultimate men mentor. We have God as our mentor. And he is the one who we ultimately want to please. And this is what this fear of the Lord means. It means that we know that he is with us always. And because he's with us always, we are in, in reverence doing what it is that we do. Number four, we work with all our soul. In the King James, it says we work heartily with all your heart. You have to put all of yourself into your work. And number five, it is the Lord that will reward you. Yes, you may receive a salary for the work that you do, but the ultimate reward comes from God. God promises us that here on this earth, he will reward us. But ultimately, he will also reward us in the life year after. Don't you want to hear the words that Jesus said? Welcome, my good and faithful servant. Come into your master's rest because of the work that you've done faithfully here on earth. Jesus says that if you cannot be trusted with earthly wealth or possessions, how can you be entrusted with heavenly riches? Who it is that we work for is God himself. And that is who we bring glory and honor to in the work that we do. So in summary, number one, God himself is at work. Number two, you were made in the image of God. You were made to work. Number three, work is more difficult, but work is not cursed. And the last point, we work for the glory of God of God. I'd like to end off with a quote from one of the heroes of the faith, 
and possibly one of the hardest working theologians of all time. And it's a man from the 11th century. His name is uh, Thomas Aquinas. And he had this to say about work. He says, there can be no joy in living without joy in work. Do you have joy in your work? Lord, thank you for being at work continuously, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, that you are still at work. And Lord, I pray that we would have a heavenly perspective, Lord, on why it is that we are here on earth. That we would have a heavenly perspective on work itself, Lord. Lord, I pray for everybody that's uh, watched the sermon. And Lord, I pray that they would find joy in what it is that they do, Lord God. That they would understand that they are here for a reason and for a purpose, Lord. And that that reason and purpose ultimately comes from you. Lord, I pray for a great week ahead. Lord, I pray for a revelation, Lord God, of how it is that we as believers should approach our work in all that we do, Lord God, as um, for you, Lord, and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit envintook.org.